part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Going to do some a couple things just a little bit different. This is um, this is really a weighty text. And so uh, I'm going to stay by my notes. Usually I, I always have my sermons printed out, uh, every little word. I never, you've never heard a sermon that I've preached that went by those notes. Um, because most of those notes are 35 to 37 minutes long. And you've never heard a sermon that was 35 or 37 minutes long. Um, but this is one I really want to kind of stay with the notes because it is one of the most, you want to say controversial uh, subjects in the Bible, when we start talking about God's choosing and um, election, there's just a lot of different things where we can go with this. And I can tell you from the very beginning that we're really not going to get into the depths of election. Uh, you're not going to hear an Arminian kind of context or a Calvinistic call, uh, context. Uh, Debbie, I still owe you. Uh, uh, the reason I didn't email back after Thursday night's lesson is because Words, it's going to be a longer discussion, but uh, it, it's, it's, we discussed this at Life Group the other night, and you know it presents more questions than answers sometimes. What we're going to do this morning is focus on the sovereignty of God. This is something that we can be 1,000% sure of, because not because we proclaim it, because we happen to agree, so God says, good, I'm glad you agree with it. No, it's, this is the truth about God. He is 1,000% sovereign. And so we're going to focus on that. And then in weeks to come, if you have questions about what does it mean about the elect of God, what did Calvin believe, what did, you know, these other believers, you know, where do we stand as a church? Uh, Pastor, where do you stand? Are you, are you this or that? Uh, we can always have those discussions later on. Those are important discussions. I don't make light of them. But if we don't understand and grasp the sovereignty of God, then none of it's going to make sense. Okay, this is the foundation that we build upon is the sovereignty of God. And we're going to get into that. I'm going to give you a simple definition this morning. Um, but for those that were not here last week, I'm not going to replay the whole uh, first verse. But, you know, it opens up. Malachi begins with the oracle you know, of, of this message that he has. And we said that that word oracle really means the burden. Uh, Malachi felt the burden. I feel the burden this morning. That's why I wanted the elder, you know, to, to pray for me this morning because I want to get God's word right. And this is one of those subjects where we just have a lot of emotions. We have a lot of different conflicting thoughts. One of the things that's just going to come out this morning from your humanity, well, that's not fair. And I, I promise you, it really is going to come. There's a part of us that when we try to take finite minds and take the infinite wisdom who God is, all of God is not going to fit in between your ears, okay? And that doesn't mean that we don't try to grasp these great truths. That doesn't mean that we don't trust. But there's going to be a lot of times that just in faith we have to say, okay, God, this is who you are, and I trust in that. I don't even fully understand that. And as I told the life group Thursday night, I don't know that I even agree with it. In, in the sense of my humanity goes, well, I want man to have more of a say. And, and God, can't we be up there kind of, you know, can't we do this 50-50? Or at least you 51% and me 49%. And we're going to find out that it's just not that way. He is God and we are not. And my objective this morning is just to preach God's word 
and the simplicity that it is, but also the profoundness that it is. And that if we could walk away in 35, 40 minutes and say, God is God. And we don't have to have any argument that, that he is sovereign in every way, then we would have accomplished this morning. But I feel that God has laid upon my heart. So uh, Malachi, chapter 1, verse 2. God's addressing the nation of Israel, his chosen people, and he's addressing their spiritual laziness. But he begins, as we saw last week, with his love for them. So instead of going down the list of here's the 10 things, here's the 20 things, here's the 50 offenses that you've been committing, he starts with his covenant love for Israel. Malachi 1-2, I have loved you. G. Campbell Morgan says it this way in his commentary. He says, you know, that word in the Hebrew that I have loved you, he said that that really can 100% stand for I have loved you, I do love you, I will love you. But in that covenant commitment that God has made to us through his covenant, he has been faithful even when we are unfaithful. So when he says I have loved you, even though we would see that in English as a past tense, it has every tense. It has a past, present, and a future tense. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And we talked about that, how brazen that was last week. How brazen for any creation to look to the creator and say, how have you done this? What have you done for me? And yet, every one of us in our humanity have done that before. On those days that things just aren't going well, and God says, well, I love you. Well, I'm not feeling so loved. Any way that we would ever respond to God in, in this doubt of his love is really just as offensive as what they did here when they just say out, how have you loved us? Well, God is kind, and he is good, and even though they respond in such a brazen way, he actually gives an answer to them. Isn't it amazing in itself that holy God, when questioned of his love for his people, I mean, think about that. Had there ever been a time that you were in a place of authority, maybe you're the boss at work and somebody came to work, maybe you're the parent at home and a child came, and you're going, that is not even worthy of a response. Have you ever felt that way? Because of your position of authority, you saw it so brazen, so disrespectful, that you just said, you know, I am not even going to answer that. In other words, then you were left to just kind of uh, swallow up all the indignity of that moment. Holy God doesn't do that. How have you loved us? And he actually responds. And he actually begins to tell them. In verses 2 through 5, God describes that he has chosen Jacob. He's talking to the Israelites, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how he did not choose his brother Esau. And while it's certainly God's prerogative to do anything that he wants, it's the wording in verse 2 that really, for the most part, has become one of the most controversial verses in all the Bible. Look what it says. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. It's those words love and hate there that really begin to grip us. Because we think of God in the first John 4, 8, you know, God is love. 
And that, that's kind of our message, that God is love. If we go out into the world, that we want them to know that God loves them. And that's appropriate because God does love them. And so why in the world would it say here that God loves one person, but he hates another? What we see in verses 2 and 3, let me go ahead and give you the answer. And then we'll go back and try to explain it and define it. God's answer here, the, the correct answer is God's sovereignty. Something that you hear me talk a lot about because it is the basis, the foundation of all of our theology of just really everything that we believe is that God is sovereign. He is God and we are not. Okay. This is really the first step of kind of realizing, okay, the role and the, or the relationship that we have here. You start getting that simplicity and then everything else starts to flow in that. Now, what is the sovereignty of God? It could be defined a lot of different ways. Here's one way that I found somebody used. It's not original to me, um, but one of my writer, five favorite writers uh, defined it this way. God's preeminence and power over all things. Does that make sense? What is God's sovereignty? It is his preeminence, that is his position over all things, and his power over all things. That fact that God is sovereign is not debated among, uh, if you want to say, traditional Christian believers. If you're a Christian believer, historically, the Bible, we believe what the Bible says, and the Bible makes no ifs, ands, or buts about it, that God is a sovereign God. Here's where it gets gray, complicated, controversial, where hours and hours, decades and decades, and I would say centuries and centuries of discussion. How does this work? If God is sovereign, if he's preeminent over all things, and he is actually powerful over all things, does it? how does that work with man's free will? Because doesn't the Bible talk about how God gave us free will? Now, please understand it. The Bible does say that God gave us free will. We do not make light of that because the Bible doesn't make light of it. But please understand this when it comes to man's free will. You did not earn that. You did not, that is not something that you kind of had in your armor to begin with. You have free will because of one reason. Because God ordained you to have free will. Okay? This, this God who's over all things preeminent and powerful over all things decided in his creation, I will give Adam and Eve the ability to make a choice. I will give them the ability to, to choose by their free will. And we see what happened with that. It didn't work out real good. But don't think that Adam and Eve, when they were created, said we demand as our right, as a privilege of a human being to have free will. No, it's part of the miracle of God's creation. He gave us this free will. You did not argue. Does that make sense? Because it's a really important point. Because if we're going to argue something from the free will of man vantage point, we have to understand where did this free will come from? (laughs) And if we earned it, then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, okay, we have a stake in this. If it was graciously given because of the design of God and only because of the design of God, it kind of lessens any authority or any kind of grasp that we would want to have on there. How does God's sovereignty work in relationship to man's free will, also with everyday life? Is everything that you and I do already predestined, predetermined? Are we nothing but human robots working out God's working? Because if he's over all things and he's preeminent over things and he's powerful all things, God very easily could have said, okay, I will control everything. 
But by God's choice, he said, I'm going to give you free will. And so now we have man's free will and we have the sovereignty of God both existing, but how do they interact? One of the ones who's probably the best known uh, person, theologian, uh, that really stands for, you know, God is just the sovereign God and, and, and even our salvation is 100% dependent upon him, not just the work of Christ, but he predetermines that. It was John Calvin. You go back hundreds of years, and even John Calvin, who's known as the Calvinist, you know, now a lot of his teachings are known as Calvinistic uh, teachings. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm very Reformed. I'm not a five-point Calvinist. Uh, that doesn't even make sense to probably 75% of you as far as, you know, what does that even mean? Uh, and it's really beside the point of today. But basically, even John Calvin, who very much as the pendulum would swing over here to uh, this almost a predetermined, predestined, even he said man's free will and the sovereignty of God somehow by God's design interact in the heavenlies. And I'm okay with that mystery. The problem is that a lot of times when you and I start hearing about the sovereignty of God and all that, we're not okay with that mystery. And we want to box up God and say, here's exactly how God does this. How many things do you think there are in this life that we can take the infinite things of God and put into a finite box? You want to start your list? And yet we try to do that sometimes in this whole sovereignty when it's the Bible ever talks about God chose somebody. Because we want to kind of, you know, we don't want to be offended by that. That's just not fair. And so we begin to, to look at this. And I can promise you that we're not going to be able to answer those questions about predestination and all that. That's not even the purpose of this morning. What we want to do is handle what did God mean when he says, okay, I, I choose Jacob, but, but I, or I loved Jacob, but, but I hated, you know, uh, Esau, I feel very, very comfortable in this, not because of my own uh, great grasp of, of theological things, but because of reading a whole bunch of people and, and God giving me through his Holy Spirit just an agreement to this. We could do justice to this text. Listen very carefully. We can do justice to this text by saying that God chose Jacob and he did not choose Esau. It would fit perfectly in the meaning there. Then why did he use the words love and hate? God's the one that's writing this. He's the one ordaining this. So why didn't he use that? If he knew that we're going to be offended. Well, number one, I don't know that God is ever worried about us being offended. Okay. (laughs) Our offense is not high on the priority of list of God. He is holy God. Okay. But why did he use those words for dramatic effect? Let me give you another biblical illustration so that you can't just say, okay, Bobby, that's your opinion. Well, it's still going to be my opinion, but let me at least parallel that with Scripture so that you can say, okay, here's another instance in Scripture where God uses the word love and hate to show the dramatic call that he's placed upon our life instead of just, you know, using those words indiscriminately. Uh, Open your Bibles to Luke 14, 26. probably going to be a familiar passage to many of you if you've been in church, if you've read the Bible, you're probably familiar with this. 
You know how they put headings over the top of certain passages of Scripture? Anybody have, what's the heading over this section of Scripture? The cost of discipleship. That's very telling. Okay. Now, again, that part is not ordained. We don't believe that that's the Word of God. Just just like in the same way that we didn't have chapters and verses, we've done that to make it easier. I can say, turn to Luke chapter 14. Okay. Instead of, turn to the letter of Luke and start reading, and I'll tell you when to stop when we get there. No, we can go to that. Well, these little headings really kind of give us, okay, here's what this little section is about. And so we have the cost of discipleship. Anybody else something different from that? Discipleship tested. Living all to follow Christ. Do you see the theme here? Yeah, it's all starting to blend together. So in this theme, the cost of discipleship, counting the cost, whatever it is, here's what Jesus says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Read that before? Is this the same guy that says, okay, honor your mother and father? Has he just said something that is conflicting now? He really hasn't if we understand it. It seems like conflict. Okay, uh, you told me to honor my mother and father, and now you said that I can't even follow you unless I hate my mother and father or my wife and my children. Now in Ephesians 5, we're going to see where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is told by God, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. So these are really conflicting messages or there's a usage of words here to show dramatic effect. I think that the latter is happening. This high call, this cost of discipleship that he's talking about in Luke chapter 14 is so high. He said, don't even start building a building until you consider the cost. Everything in this passage is talking about, hey, this is costly. And he gives us kind of the parameters of this high cost, this high call by saying, unless you can hate your mother and father, you you can't follow me. Do you think, as you read this passage, that he is calling us to actually hate our mother and father, our wife or our children? Do you understand that that is a literary form of him saying, this is really important? Could that be the application back in Malachi? I'm going to tell you that's where I go with it. That he chose Jacob, but he did not choose Israel. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, um, Ishmael. And, and in this context, Esau. Because when we look back in the Luke passage, look what it says in the next verse, and then we'll move on. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If we do want to, if we want to do a literal rendition of that, did you bring your cross this morning? Did you saddle up with your cross on your shoulder? We have to understand that we're not trying to make fun of God's word. I'm not in any way trying to belittle this. We have to understand that it is written sometimes with a literary kind of effect to give us an understanding. And here he says, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't follow me. Your love for me has to be so foremost that it really makes your love for your mother and father, which is such a natural thing and you would naturally do, it pales in comparison. That's what he's saying. When we go back to the passage, we begin to see that he's answering a question, how have you loved us? The people of Israel say, God says, I have loved you. I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. How have you loved us? 
And the answer to their question really prompts us to ask some questions. Let me ask you this morning. When we see God's sovereignty displayed in Malachi, in the choosing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, did God owe Abraham anything in choosing him? Was there an agreement that God says, oh, look, you be a good boy for four years, five years, and you will add, earn status in my kingdom, and I will make of you a great people. Is that how it worked? No. There was no earning of this. God graciously just chose Abraham. And the Bible actually says that he chose it independent of his works, his goodness, not only what he had done, but guess what? What he would do. So when we say that God chose you, he didn't look at the former version of Bobby and say, you know, right now, man, you are a sad case. But you followed me for 10, 15 years, and I may make something out of your life. God does not choose us based on our past, our present, or our future, as far as our morality, our goodness. The Bible makes it very clear, clear that he chooses for his own pleasure. And he chooses Israel for his own pleasure. Did Abraham earn, second question, did Abraham earn his choosing by being better than anybody else? Did God scan the earth and go, okay, you scored a 46, you got a 32, oh my goodness, you got a 28, oh, you got a 76. You're one point kind of in passing here. And that's a low grade but I'm going to choose you. No. Abraham does nothing. Last question. Even after being chosen, was Abraham always obedient to God? Could God say, okay, I'm I'm going to save you and choose you because the future version of Abraham is a really, really good, perfect man. No, he can't even say that. God's choice is completely for his pleasure. This, believe it or not, is often where we begin to debate about God's sovereignty. Because one of the most common phrases that we hear about when God chooses and doesn't choose are the words, that's not fair. And I completely get that. If God chooses you and he doesn't choose me, and I know you're just as bad as I am, it doesn't seem from a human perspective, if we try to put this in a finite box, this infinite wisdom of God, this infinite attribute of God that he's sovereign over all things and that he chooses for his own pleasure, all of a sudden it doesn't make sense from my little human level. I would explain to your second or third, uh, two-year-old or three-year-old about your sovereignty, kind of loosely interpreted, your your authority as a parent. Does it always work with your two-year-old or three-year-old? 13-year-old or (laughs) 15-year-old? 28-year-old, you know. Oh. There may be an authority that you have as a parent, but, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not questioned. And that's where we really usually come. For some, somehow, when God chooses, it's not fair. We must be, Paul must have had that matter in the back of his mind when he quotes Malachi in the New Testament. He does so in Romans chapter 9. Open up to Romans chapter 9 real quick. And once again, I'm going to ask you to share if you have different things that are over the heading of this section. You may have to go back a couple verses, but what headings do you have over this particular Romans chapter 9, 
over this particular section of Scripture, what are some of the headings that you have? God's sovereign choice. God's gracious election of Israel. Israel's rejection of Christ, kind of coming from a, a kind of your, your, uh, yeah, kind of reverse engineering that. Okay. Same truth, just kind of reverse engineered there. Anybody else? Yeah, God's mercy is under his sovereign will. Do you get the drift there? Okay, that's what this passage is about. Paul's addressing, uh, Romans, one of the most theological books in our entire Bible, and he's addressing this. He's writing to the Romans about God's sovereign choice. And look at what Paul writes in verses 13 through 15. He quotes Malachi 1-2. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So he brings that up. Okay? He said, remember 400 plus years ago? This prophet Malachi? This is what he said. And he brings this up. Now look what, what he says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is that a, 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 a statement or a question? Got a question mark, so it's a question. Okay. He says, okay, what shall we say then? In other words, what do we say about this? Question. Is there injustice on God's part? Because somehow, it's like Paul's already thinking about what his readers are. Oh, that's not very fair. I don't know that I really like that he loved one and that he hated another. And yet he quotes that and he asks these two questions. But here's the cool thing. Once again, God answers. By no means. Is this unjust? Is this unfair? And Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by no means. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If you are the CEO, founder, president, number uno of a company, and you have a hundred employees, and they have different degrees of authority, some are vice principal, uh, vice presidents, some are this, that, managers, regional managers, and then it all comes down to, let's just say grunt worker, okay? Nothing wrong with grunt worker. But all of a sudden, grunt worker, you know, gets a promotion, and sales manager, who's up the flow chart, doesn't. And so he goes to that president, that CEO, and says, well, Come on, buddy. You know, have you seen the flow chart of their company, the company layout? Uh, this is Sam, and um, buddy, this is me. And if you notice, there's two clear lines of authority that I'm over him, and yet you just gave him this job. If you are CEO, founder of this company, uh, you are the owner of this company, is it your prerogative to do with Sam what you want to do with Sam? Yeah. What if you did that totally independent of even the qualifications of Sam? Is that still within your prerogative? Could you do something because you're the CEO simply for your own pleasure? Yeah. This is what God is saying. This is what what Paul is saying about God. Man's desire is to somehow have a say that God should act this way. What God should do. 
I, I wish I had a dollar for every time that somebody said, well, you know, I think God should. I'm glad that there's not a lightning bolt for every time that somebody said, well, I think God should. Because, you know, now again, if I was God, I'm here, I'm going to be the exact opposite. I mean, the exact example. You know, I'm throwing a lightning bolt every once in a while just to wake it up. You know, just to, oh, you're going to question me? But again, this is if I'm God. And guess what? Thank you. (laughs) I'm not. We're not trying to be silly here. But do you see that it becomes silly when we start to put, when put into to life applications? But here's the thing. I'll never forget my older daughter. You have to remember that, that Ashley is almost seven years older than Bethany. And uh, we made her wait to get her first phone uh, to a certain age. And Bethany comes along seven years, almost seven years later. And number one, just phone technology and all that really had changed during that time. So that, that by itself was one of the factors. Um, but we got Bethany a phone. And do you remember the injustice? <laughs> now, let me remind you guys, this is important to the illustration. This is important to the illustration. Our older felt that is not... She didn't even say it that calmly. I mean, it was like, okay... Here's the thing. This is what makes it kind of silly. We're the ones that paid for her phone seven years before, or, you know, when she got hers. We're the ones that were still paying her monthly bill. And we are the parents and we are the people of authority. And I could go down the list of even more things. Did she have a right to say that is not fair? Did her gut tell her? In her mind, trying to box up the, the decision of her mom and dad that this was not fair. And I promise you, when my sister got the brand new Ford Probe GT red, and I had to buy, and she, that was given to her, and I had to buy my own AMC Gremlin years before. The first thing, I didn't go, you know, in the wisdom of my mother and father, I know that this is correct and right. I trust implicitly the wisdom and the sovereignty over our family of my mom and my dad. No. If I could have picketed it with a sign, unfair. And this is what we do with God. In the silliness of those illustrations, and those illustrations do not even begin to compare. They really aren't comparison. Brian in discipleship the other morning, you know, we were talking about, okay, what if you did this to Drew and you did this to Anna? And we were kind of playing through the scenario. But here's the, the, the faulty part of that. It allows us to kind of embrace a little bit of that and that you're a parent and they're the children. But here's what it doesn't embrace. You're fallen and they are fallen. God is perfect and holy. And guess what? We are not. So even though we would put ourselves in that phone situation, the car situation, whatever, that doesn't even start to compare because we're not dealing with the same criteria. The criteria is God is holy. He's the creator. And guess what? We're the creation. Okay. There's such an authority that we don't even begin to grasp that. Okay, here's the biblical problem with these illustrations is that this pos- we have the position on earth of authority, the CEO, the parent to this. We have the position of authority but we don't have the position of holiness. Does that make sense? 
God has given you, he's ordained, parents, you are to bring up your children. You, you have authority over your children. He's ordained, children, obey your parents. This is God's ordaining. So there's a position of authority that God has established, but do we have the position of holiness? No. This is what separates all these illustrations from what God actually does. Both parents, when we give those illustrations, both parents and children are fallen and sinful. Now let's go back to the verses. Verses 3 through 5. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, now the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So that's why Edom comes in there. The Edomites are the descendants. Just like we would say the Israelites are the descendants, you know, on, on God's side here. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I'll tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. For our own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. All to sum up that, you know what we could say about verses 3 through 5? That, that man was proclaiming this is not fair. Especially if you're an Edomite. That God chose the Israelites, but he did not choose you. But in reality, stay with me on this, okay? If God allowed sinful actions to be judged... And the Edomites simply got what they deserved by being unholy, sinful people. Is that justice? I'll let you ponder on that. Is that. If I do a crime and then I get sentenced by the judge to do five years of hard labor and I did a crime that was awful, is that justice. Yeah. We are a people that love justice. We just don't like justice for us. <laughs> because, you know, in our explanation, when there's a condemnation that, that comes our way, we always have a but. I know. Remember, how many of y'all had brothers and sisters growing up? Yeah. And so a condemnation would come from your parents or from somebody and I promise you, almost every time that you would try to explain yourself to your parents, there was always a but involved. Well, I know Johnny did this, but. And so we try to explain away. Well, what God is saying here is, look, I, I dealt with them justly. There's no unfairness. They're, they're getting what they deserve. Here's the two questions I want you to ponder this morning. When they, were the, um, the Israelites as sinful and rebellious as the Edomites? Don't shy away from the answer if you're convicted. Yes. They're God's chosen people, and yet they rebel against God time and time and time and time again. There is nothing that they earned. They were not better. God didn't say, okay, I choose you because, you know, they got 56 on the test, and you got at least a 78. We're dealing with the same sinful, rebellious people here. Did they deserve that actions? Would it have been unjust for God to look upon the Israelites... And say, I lay waste to their land. I do not choose Israel. Would it have been God's in his authority, in his sovereignty over all these things, would that have been just? Or would that have been unjust? It would have been very just. 
See, here's the major complication we have with God's choosing. The Edomites were not just more sinful than Israelites, and so they were the, the, uh, the Israelites were the lesser of two evils. The difference is God's sovereign choice. I don't understand it fully, guys. I don't have a mind that can comprehend in fullness all this. I just trust what the word of God says. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. This is what God says to Israel. Not based on their merit, not based on anything that they've done. For you are a people holy to God, to, to the Lord your God. He calls them holy, not because they are holy. <laughs> we just said that they are just as sinful as any of the Edomites and the Jeshubites and this Heights and the you know, termites, all these people, you know, that they're just as bad. And yet God says, for you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Were they the smartest? Were they the prettiest? Were they the most in number? Look at the next verse, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. It didn't even make sense. Remember when he chose David? He goes down the line. And every one of David's brothers were more worthy from a human standpoint, viewpoint, than David was. He keeps on going, 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 going. And then he says, okay, this is what I choose. So here's the thing, guys. Is God allowed to choose who he wants to choose? He's sovereign. Is it unfair when God chooses this one but doesn't choose that one? Whatever that complexity is. Again, let's not get into the whole Arminian Calvinist thing, this one. Can God, just in theory, if God chooses but doesn't choose, but is, you know, this one is just getting the justice that they deserve. This one does, you know, deserved justice, but God showed grace and mercy instead. Is God allowed to do that and still be God? Yes. And the answer to that question is always going to be yes. Because guess what, guys? God doesn't have a book in heaven that says articles of being God, one through a hundred. And in order to be God, you have to do these hundred things. And as long as you do these hundred things, you can be God. No, he is God. It's who he is. I am that I am. Not because I fulfilled this duty of being God. I thought I'd meet your requirements somehow in your finite human mind to be God. I am God. And guess what? Today, thousands of years later, guess what? He's still God. <laughs> not because we allow him to be God, not because he follows the rules of being God, because he is God. And it's amazing truth that God chose Israel. Here's the beauty of it, and then we're going to close. How many of you today come from Jewish heritage, Jewish, Jewish bloodline heritage uh, lineage? Wow, I'm sad for you. Because <laughs> if you're not Jewish, if you're not people of this covenant, then are you, can you be chosen? I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. We see Gentile people being saved in the Old Testament. They didn't come just with the work of Christ. There's Old Testament Gentiles that will be in heaven, okay? This amazing thing that happens when Christ comes and, and we see the gospel in all of his fullness, 
that there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer male or, or female. There's no longer you know, slave and owner. He says, I, I abolish all that because now I extend the gospel to every people, every tribe and every nation. And I promise you, if God said that there will be people from every tribe and every nation in heaven, guess what there's going to be? People from every tribe and every nation in heaven. Get used to it, okay? Yeah. Because he's sovereign God. It's his pleasure. Truly is his pleasure. It's what he wants. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. This is what he says to me. This is, if you're a Christian, if you put your full faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, this is your verses, guys. This is who you are now. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now he's talking, is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about Greece? Is he talking about America? Is he talking about uh, Taiwan? Is he talking? He's talking about the people of God. He said, I've called you to be a people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're a Christian this morning, that's what he's done. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Folks, I, it's not that I shy away from discussions on Arminium and Calvinistic views and all that. I, if we don't get God's sovereignty, we're not going to understand. We, we don't even need to start the discussion on all the intricacies of all those other things. And I'm not so sure that there's really room in everyday life for us to go into deep, deep, deep convictional places of that. You're great to have your own. If you say, Bobby, I'm a five-point Calvinist. Man, God bless you. If you say, man, I don't believe any of that stuff. God bless you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister. And this is going to unite us. We're going to have our opinions. But remember, when we draw our opinions, guys, we're trying to put in a finite box the infinite wisdom of God. You're never going to be able to do it. Here's what we know. Three things, and we'll be closed. God is sovereign, and we must not apologize for all that that means. Don't apologize for God's sovereignty. Well, you know, I... I just don't think it's fair, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut because he's going to know. Don't apologize. This is one of his great attributes. Number two, we now look through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says. So we cannot have a full grasp of the mighty things of God. Number three, in closing, there will never be even one person who desires forgiveness in Christ that God says, no, you weren't chosen, go away. Here's the confidence I have in my God. That if he puts in the heart of man to desire forgiveness in Christ, he was chosen. I don't understand all the complexities. This little finite mind, I'm not a smart person, guys. But I do know this. I trust God with this. I know this about God. There will never be one person said, you know, I knocked on the, the gates of salvation. I so wanted to be a citizen of heaven, and God did not allow me. Now, just the fact that you want to do that means that God has wooed you by his Holy Spirit. He's opened your eyes to your sin and that there's a sufficient Savior there and, and your desire. That's just proof that yeah, God did choose you. It's his pleasure to have you in heaven. 
So when people start to say, well, you know, I don't know that about this or that, and they start to really try to define, you know, what about this one? Spurgeon himself, a five-point Calvinist, uh, probably one of the most well-known of all the Calvinists, he said, look, until God puts a, a stripe down the back of those who are chosen, I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus. You know what I think Spurgeon really meant by that? I can rest. Theology, is it important? Yeah. Does it intrigue our human minds? Yes. I think Spurgeon would say, but if you grasp the sovereignty of God and you have faith and trust in that, all the theology is going to fit into place. Everything else is going to fit into place. You don't trust the sovereignty of God, you have an argument with that, then nothing you discuss is going to fit into place anyway. Here's what I know. In my sinfulness at 12 years old, God showed me a redeeming Savior that loved me so much that he was willing to die for me. And I don't know, you know, you can say, well, you know, predestination, is it just foreknowledge that God? I don't know. But I'll be like that boy in John. This morning I was blind, but this afternoon I see. And that's good enough for me. And I pray that that's good enough for you. I'm not saying that we shouldn't challenge ourselves with theology and different things. I'm just saying, guys, in, in one way, remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about in discipleship, Taylor, about how we start out here and, and we can get all full of knowledge, but if it doesn't bring us back down to humility, then we have lost the point of knowledge. If knowledge doesn't end up in a humility, that we would stand before a sovereign, holy God and say, Oh my goodness, why would God ever save me? But I'm just glad that he did. But this is the emerging heartbeat of our lives with all this theology and all that discussion. God saved me. And you put your faith in in Jesus Christ and his first work, he saves you. That's the amazing gospel. Not to belittle all the theology. I just want to make much of Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. Father, perhaps we have opened up a can of worms that creates more questions than it begins, begins to answer. But Father, just in the scripture we saw that we had questions, and yet, Father, you answered them. We may not fully comprehend all that's the weight of those answers. But Father, you have given us sufficiency to know that you have chosen because it is your good pleasure to choose. So, Father, I surrender to to that authority, Father. But even if I didn't, you would still be sovereign. My agreement doesn't make it right. My agreement simply brings peace to my heart. So, Father, I love you and I thank you that you would even allow this little mind, this simple mind, to somehow grasp the infinite sovereignty of how you are preeminent and powerful over all things. And in that sovereignty, you chose me. And I will ever praise you and I will ever thank you that you would show grace instead of justice, what I justly deserved. You are. God, 
And yet you have given me privilege this morning, Father, to say you are my God and I love you and I want to serve you. Father, bring this reality to our church, Father, to our hearts. People of simple understanding, let us see in simplicity and humility, Father, how great you are as we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.